Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I'm good. This episode is being brought to you from our satellite satellite recording studio. <laughs> We've left the loft, and we are okay. out at my former roommate slash current listener, Lauren's house, where I'm pet-sitting for her beautiful puppies. Uh, she actually doesn't know that I'm recording here, so she probably won't hear it until she listens <laughs> to the show, because I know I'm going to forget to mention it. <laughs> but uh, how are you, Eileen? Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> I'm great. Uh, you know, as always, keeping busy with work and the podcast as usual. But um, I do want to say how happy we are to announce that this episode is brought to you by our very first sponsor, Kind Bars. I'm sure you recognize the name. They're in stores everywhere. We do have a special offer for misconduct listeners. Like Eileen said, I'm sure you recognize the name. Kind makes amazing and healthy snack bars. And we're ecstatic to have them not only as our sponsor, but as our first sponsor. Yeah. So now on to the show. This episode is a little bit different than our other ones. So if you are on Patreon and you donate at the $25 a month level, you get to choose whatever true crime topic you would like, and we will cover it on an episode. This is our first Patreon donor episode, and Josette has been a donor from the very beginning of the podcast. So we're excited to get to research this and bring this content to you. So Josette, got to pick the episode and she kindly gave it to her best friend Melanie and they wanted us to cover the murder of Elizabeth Short or who is more commonly known as the Black Dahlia. So we've all heard of the Black Dahlia. You know, this is probably one of the most well-known unsolved murders even outside of true crime junkie circles. The Black Dahlia might be one of the first true crime cases I think I ever read about. And growing up in Southern California, it was not uncommon to come across articles in the newspaper. You know, it's like, oh, it's the X whatever anniversary of the unsolved murder. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Black Dahlia is so well known that people only know the case by that name and don't actually know that her name was Elizabeth Short. Even though I'm familiar with the main facts of the case, it was really interesting to deep dive into the information out there, especially since I haven't done a proper read through of the case in forever. Luckily, there is a lot of information out there, and I ended up learning a lot of new stuff as well. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, a woman was walking home with her young daughter in the Lamarck Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. As a woman walked by an empty lot in a residential neighborhood, she was taken aback by what she thought was a broken mannequin lying in the grass. Upon closer look, she realized that the mannequin lying in the grass was actually the body of a young woman. The face had Obvious signs of trauma, noticeably deep cuts on the sides of her mouth. Her body had been completely cut in half and drained of the blood. The case immediately became highly publicized and has remained so as it went from an open murder investigation to a Los Angeles urban legend. 
Even though there were a long list of potential suspects, the case has never been solved. So we're going to take you through what we know about Elizabeth Short, how she became the Black Dahlia, and the suspects in the case. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Massachusetts. She was raised in Medford, which is a suburb outside of downtown Boston. Elizabeth was the third of five daughters born to Cleo and Phoebe Short. Dorothea and Virginia were older, Elizabeth was a middle child, and then there were two younger sisters named Eleonora and Muriel. When the Great Depression hit in late 1929, times got hard for the family, and Cleo, who'd been making a living designing miniature golf courses, parked his car on a nearby bridge and disappeared. And this led law enforcement to believe that he had committed suicide in early 1930. Phoebe then raised five girls on her own during the Depression. She often worked multiple jobs to try and make ends meet, but most of their income came from public assistance. People who knew Elizabeth, or Bet as her friends called her, described her as a beautiful and friendly girl. But beyond being pretty, she was also somebody that people liked to be around. There was just something about her that people really liked. Another thing that people said about Elizabeth was that she wanted to be an actress in Hollywood. Several years after Cleo disappeared, Phoebe received a letter from California. It was from Cleo. He hadn't actually committed suicide on the bridge in 1930, but he had left the family after feeling overwhelmed by their financial situation. The letter was sent to apologize and attempt to reconnect with his family. Cleo asked to come home, but Phoebe refused to take him back. Elizabeth always had issues with asthma, so during the cold winter months, she was sent from Medford to live with family in Miami. For years, she would live part of the year in Massachusetts and the other part in Florida. So when her father reached out, she decided she wanted to try to reconnect with him. They exchanged letters, and then she started visiting him regularly. He had settled in Vallejo, California, and worked at a shipyard on the San Francisco Bay. When she became old enough to work, her dad offered to have her move out to California and stay with him. So in early 1943, she packed her bags and moved in with her dad. It didn't take long before her relationship with her dad soured, and he ended up kicking her out after just a few months of her being moved in. Stuck in California, Elizabeth kind of had to fend for herself. She took a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now known as the Vandenberg Air Force Base in Lompoc, California. But not long after that, she relocated to nearby Santa Barbara. It was in Santa Barbara that she had a run-in with the law that resulted in the now widely circulated 1943 mugshot. She'd been out with friends at a restaurant and they got a little bit too rowdy to the point that the cops were called. Since she was only 19, she was booked for underage drinking and she was fingerprinted, but the police ended up taking pity on her and didn't charge her. Instead, they sent her back to Massachusetts to her mom. She didn't stay in Massachusetts long before she went back to California. This time she went to L.A., it was here that she garnered her reputation for dating around and being a bit of a party girl. Now, during the research, we saw a lot of conflicting accounts of that, though. She did like to go out and date. But then there were sources that said that she didn't really drink that much and she stayed home a lot. So I don't know if her partying ways were that different from any other single woman in L.A. at the time. I think a lot of the speculation around her partying and dating habits came from the extensive sensationalized media coverage that happened after she died. In L.A., she met a man named Gordon Fickling and made plans to marry him. However, their engagement was cut short when Gordon, a military pilot, was shipped out to Europe. After that, Elizabeth remained in L.A. for a little while longer and booked some modeling jobs, but overall she was just feeling underwhelmed by the trajectory of her career. She decided to go back to Medford for the holidays. 
After that, instead of going back to L.A., she stayed in Miami with her relatives. She dated in Miami and ended up falling in love with another military pilot named Matt Gordon. He was deployed to India where he was involved in a plane crash. He survived, and while he was recovering in the hospital, he wrote Elizabeth to propose to her. She accepted the proposal, but Matt Gordon was involved in yet another plane crash and sadly died on August 10, 1945. This was less than a week before the Japanese surrendered, ending the war. Elizabeth was heartbroken when she heard the news of her fiancé. She actually went through a period of time where she told people that Matt was her husband and they had a baby that died during childbirth. So after she started to recover from the loss of Matt, she decided to start reaching out to her old friends from California. One of those friends was Gordon Fickling, who had returned from deployment safe and left the military after the war. In July of 1946, she decided to relocate back to Southern California, and this is where she would spend the last six months of her life. After returning to the L.A. area, she started dating other people and rekindled her interest in acting and modeling. She briefly left L.A. for San Diego in early December of 1946, and the reason for her abrupt departure is subject to speculation. The person she had been staying with alleged in an interview several years after her death that the night that she left, she was crying and seemed to be worried, saying that she had to get out of there. In San Diego, she made friends with an employee at the Aztec Theater after the employee found her sleeping in the audience seats after a show. Elizabeth told the girl that she had left Hollywood after becoming fed up with trying to find acting work, and the girl offered Elizabeth a place to stay for a couple of days, but she ended up staying for a couple weeks. Elizabeth was back in L.A. by late December and resumed her life as it had been before she went to San Diego. She started dating a man named Robert Manley, and Robert, or Red as he was known, was a salesman in Los Angeles. They dated for several weeks despite the fact that he had a pregnant wife at home, and Red maintained that he never slept with Elizabeth, that they only dated and went out on the town together. On the night of January 8, 1947, Red gave her a ride to Hollywood, and they booked a hotel room, and then they went out. That night, he said that she slept on a chair while he slept in the bed, and then the next day, he had a morning appointment, so he left and then came back to the hotel around noon. Elizabeth said that she was planning to go home to Massachusetts, but first she needed to meet up with her sister at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. So Red drove her there, but he didn't hang out for long, and when he left, he said she was making a phone call in the hotel lobby. Robert Manley and the hotel employees that were working in the lobby were the last known people to see Elizabeth until her body was found six days later on January 15th. Now a message from our sponsor, Kind. Like I said, we are so happy to welcome our very first sponsor, Kind. Not only do they make amazing and healthy snacks with ingredients you can pronounce, they support a lot of causes and give back to the community through the Kind Foundation, and that's important to us. But if you're ready to try some tasty, healthy snacks, we have an offer for our misconduct listeners. You can try 10 Kind Bars for free, and all you have to do is pay for the shipping. Go to www.kindsnacks.com misconduct and order the sampler box. This will also enroll you in the Kind Snack Club, where you'll receive monthly snacks at a discount and get member-only bonuses. The free sample box comes with some amazing flavors, like my favorites, oats and honey, peanut butter, and the roasted jalapeno, which I can only get by being a member because that one's not sold around me. I really like the apple mango and pineapple banana pressed fruit bars, and those are in the free sample box, which is great. 
So head over to kindsnacks.com slash misconduct. And we want to give a huge thank you to Kind for sponsoring us. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you're actually supporting us. So give Kind a try. And hey, get 10 free snacks while you're at it. Wednesday, January 15th, 1947, was a cold day in Los Angeles. Betty Bursinger was a housewife who was heading home from a nearby shop around 10 a.m. with her three-year-old daughter, Anne. They were walking up Norton Avenue, approaching 39th Street, and passed by one of the several vacant lots in the area. The neighborhood was in the process of being developed, but World War II had slowed down the construction in the area even after the war had ended. As Betty passed by this vacant lot, she saw something white in the overgrown grass. She didn't think anything of it at first, because it was not uncommon to see trash dumped in these lots. But as she got closer, she took a closer look. At first, she thought she was looking at a store mannequin because it was in two pieces, separated at the waist. She kept walking, but something made her go back. She then realized that it wasn't a mannequin at all, but it was a woman's body. Betty screamed and grabbed her daughter and ran to a nearby house to call the police. Two police officers arrived to the lot in minutes, Officer Perkins and Fitzgerald. They surveyed the scene, verifying Betty's story, and then they called for backup. So we're going to discuss the details of how Elizabeth's body was found, and it's a little graphic. So if you're sensitive to that, you may want to skip ahead a bit. This information came from the coroner's report, most of which can be found online, and we will link them on our website. Although the body was cut in half, the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussions to the brain and lacerations on the face. The weapon used was believed to be a butcher's knife. Her face was cut into a Glasgow smile, uh, which is when you slash the corners of your mouth to your ears, and these cuts were believed to have happened while she was alive and were a contributing factor in her death. She also had several other cuts on her breasts and legs. In some cases, portions of her flesh had been completely cut away. The body was cut in half at the waist, and it's believed that this happened post-mortem. The body was completely drained of blood, and it's believed that whoever murdered her washed her body after she was dead. Because of the lack of blood in and around the body, it was clear that she had been killed somewhere else. The body was purposefully positioned by whoever had left her there, and she was lying on her back with her arms raised over her head. The upper part of her body was about two feet from the sidewalk, and the lower part of her body was about ten inches over from the upper half and had been posed with her legs spread. Further evidence at the crime included a cement sack filled with watery blood, a car tire mark that had been left on the side of the curb, like as if somebody parked there and scraped their tire, and what looked like a bloody heel print on that tire mark. The murder was obviously a high priority for the LAPD due to the gruesome nature of the crime. News of the girl cut in half spread quickly, and soon onlookers, including reporters and civilians, were all over the crime scene. LAPD eventually got a handle on the crowds, but not before both police and onlookers contaminated the crime scene. So now police were tasked with identifying her. They sent fingerprints to the FBI, but they were delayed due to a winter storm. About a week later, the FBI matched her fingerprints based on her previous arrest from several years earlier. She was identified as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, whose last known address was in Santa Barbara. So the investigation began and police started to piece together her life from her arrest in Santa Barbara until the present. While the police worked on connecting the dots, the press was hard at work doing the same. This case was highly sensational, and all the papers were in competition to break the latest details, especially her identity. 
The investigation quickly expanded and became the largest investigation that LAPD conducted since the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Marion Parker in 1927. Hundreds of police officers were barred from neighboring agencies to assist. Between the time she was dropped off at the Biltmore by Robert Manley on the 9th and when her body was found on the 15th, there were no verifiable sightings of Elizabeth, so the date she came across her murderer is not known. The Herald Express, owned by William Randolph Hearst, made a deal with the LAPD that the LAPD would give the Herald Express exclusives to new information, and then they would use their own investigative team to look into those leads. And in exchange, the Herald Express would give the LAPD total access to whatever they found. Although the LAPD captain was not thrilled with the deal, he took it because he was desperate for a break in the case. First order of business for the Herald Express was to track down Elizabeth's mom, and the reporters found Phoebe fairly quickly. And they felt that they would need to pump her for information before they told her about her daughter's death, so that is exactly what they did. They told Phoebe that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest in Los Angeles, and Phoebe loved to talk about her daughters, so she was quick to provide any and every detail the reporters asked about. Then they dropped the bomb that Elizabeth had been murdered, and Phoebe didn't believe them. She didn't believe that she was dead, and she also didn't believe that she was brutally murdered. And the LAPD ended up having to call Medford police to dispatch an officer to Phoebe's home to tell her in person. That is awful. Can you imagine if that had happened, like something that blatant had happened today? I know. That's insane to me. Yeah, it's just, I mean, God, it's completely awful. And then this case like went national. Mm-hmm. So imagine hearing about this like awful case. This girl got cut in half in Los Angeles. Yeah. And then you find out that it's your kid. And then you find out that the reporters that called you pumped you for information and to then you. told you that yeah. your, it was her. I mean, it's awful. You're a shit person to do that to somebody. I'm sorry, but like, that's horrible. I could not sit there on the phone and do that to somebody. It's yeah, horrible. It's, it's literally. Ugh. Now that Elizabeth's identity and details about her life are in the press, anonymous tips start pouring into the LAPD. One caller said that Elizabeth had a trunk full of photos that had recently been lost while traveling on Greyhound. Herald Express ended up tracking down that suitcase at the downtown LA station. Pictures of Elizabeth, her friends, and her life flooded the newspapers. Then in mid-January 1947, the Herald Express ran an article referring to her as the Black Dahlia. That's a name that would stick and end up being more popular than her actual name, even today. It was common practice to give nicknames to victims and killers in the press at that time. It's also fairly common for the press to nickname killers today as well. The name The Black Dahlia is believed to be a play on the 1946 movie The Blue Dahlia. Black came from her hair color and propensity for wearing black clothing. At the time, her killer was referred to as the werewolf, and the murder itself was called the werewolf murder. And I've never heard of Elizabeth's murder referred to as the werewolf murder. That just must be like a name that really didn't stand the test of time. Yeah. And... Because the case was so sensationalized, there are a lot of rumors, some that persist today, about Elizabeth's life leading up to her death. The first is she was not just a hard partier and serial dater, which is already up for debate, but there were rumors that she was working as a call girl or a prostitute. Concrete evidence of this has never been found or released, but it became a popular narrative in the media. Another rumor, or rumors, that circulated often was that people would come forward saying they saw or hung out with her in the missing weeks between January 9th and 15th. Despite the claims, investigations have not been able to prove any of these assertions. 
It was also widely circulated that she was pregnant when she was killed, but the autopsy showed that not only was she not pregnant, it was unlikely that she ever had been pregnant. And finally, the media speculated heavily on her sexuality, suggesting that she was either bisexual or a lesbian. And obviously, there's nothing wrong or even terribly exciting about that, but in 1947, these were considered to be lurid details that sold papers, but there wasn't really any evidence to suggest that she dated anybody other than men. On January 23rd, a man called the Los Angeles Examiner and claimed that he had killed Elizabeth. He said that he was concerned because it seemed like the news coverage of the murder was dying down, and then he offered to mail the editor some of her personal items. The next day, a package arrived that contained her birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. Mark Hansen was an acquaintance who had let Elizabeth and other friends stay at his home in the past, This package was untraceable. Two days later, her handbag and one of her shoes was located in the trash a few miles from the crime scene. Robert Manley was the one that positively identified them, and it's believed that the killer lived within walking distance of both the crime scene and the spot where the purse was found. Letters began coming into different news outlets from people claiming to have information or claiming to be responsible for her murder. One letter read... Quote, I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. End quote. And it was written, you know, in the cutout. You cut out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Letters from newspapers and magazines. So that's why it was the grammar's weird. Most of these tips and claims were determined by the LAPD to be hoaxes. However, there were a number of taunting letters sent to the LAPD, press, and district attorney that were thought to be connected to the person who sent the birth certificate to the press. These taunting letters were untraceable as they had been rinsed with gasoline, so the fingerprints weren't recovered. Two predominant theories emerged in the case. The first is that she was the victim of someone she had never met. Or the other being she knew the killer and the severity of the crimes was due to a personal vendetta. The FBI believed that she knew her killer and they had harbored an emotional attachment to her that would help explain the brutality of the crimes and the reason she was left in a public view post-mortem. The Herald Express hired their own profiler to provide insight for their articles. This expert wrote a series for the paper that tried to get into the head of the killer These pieces were also highly sensationalized and made many claims into what the killer's state of mind and intentions were. There was a theory that the killer had some medical training because her body was cut in half. 
The FBI and LAPD worked together to compile a list of medical students from local universities. USC Medical School was one that complied and sent a list of their med students. The list was then cross-referenced in the LAPD and FBI databases to check for criminal records. The two separate investigations often were at odds with each other. It was hard for the LAPD to stay on top of what the press was going to release next, and they always seemed to be releasing information either the LAPD didn't have or didn't want to be in the public yet. Eventually, the useful incoming leads and tips dried up and left investigators desperate for new information. Without constant leads coming in, the news coverage began to slow. About 60 people confessed to the murder, but only 25 were considered to be serious suspects by law enforcement. Because of the details of the crime and then the public and media attention, a lot of false claims were made about who was involved with the murder. Many people were quick to volunteer their own family members or even themselves as the perpetrator. Most of the suspects were men, but there were a couple women. And since the original 25 were named, some have been ruled out and additional names have been added on. None of the women suspects were looked into particularly seriously. It was theorized that a woman could have been responsible, and then that would explain why the body was cut in half, because then it would be lighter and easier to carry. The other reason law enforcement thought a woman might have been involved was because Elizabeth had checked her bag sometime the week before she went missing and left it there. Law enforcement believed that she had been staying with a woman who would have lent her the essentials that she would need. A woman who was a WAC sergeant in San Diego confessed to the murder, and she was almost immediately ruled out as a suspect. Another female suspect on the DA's list was only referred to as queer woman surgeon. (laughs) And like we had mentioned, one of the rumors floating around in the press was that Elizabeth was bisexual or a lesbian, but according to the DA files about the suspect, Elizabeth had no use for queers, and that is a quote. And it's like, it's (sighs) kind of funny. What? It's just like, I mean, I know it's like 1940s, whatever, sure. but just the way that it's like, no use for queers. Yeah, it's no like, use for okay. queers. Yeah. All right. It's, like, it made me laugh because it's so just bad. so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, like, yeah, it's so bad. It's laughable. It's right. No use for queers. All right, then. <laughs> so now we'll take you through some of the more prominent suspects that are still considered to be the potential perpetrator by experts even today. We won't hit on all of them because they're just, there's so many but we will tell you about the most likely contenders. The first suspect for the murder was Robert Manley. This is a reasonable assumption because he was the last known person to be seen with Elizabeth and he dropped her off at the Biltmore where she then disappeared. Manley was given two polygraphs and passed them both. He also has a sworn alibi from his wife saying that she was with him the night the body was left in the lot. After identifying Elizabeth's purse and shoe, police let him go and he tried to repair his relationship with his wife. Manley had been previously given a medical discharge from the army due to mental health issues, and after the intense public scrutiny he received from his involvement with Elizabeth, his mental health further deteriorated. He was eventually committed to a mental health hospital by his wife in 1954 after claiming he was hearing voices. He died in 1986. LAPD ruled him out, but many experts believe he could still be responsible. Walter Bailey was a surgeon who lived one block from the crime scene. He moved to that house after he left his wife in late 1946. Interestingly, his daughter Barbara was Elizabeth's sister, Virginia's maid of honor at her wedding. 
Bailey died in 1948, and his autopsy showed he had a degenerative brain disease that was possible to cause violent behavior in otherwise calm individuals. At the time of Elizabeth's death, Bailey was 67. According to his mistress and beneficiary of his estate, she knew a terrible secret about him that she refused to divulge. It is speculated that the terrible secret could be that he killed Elizabeth, or the other theory is that he was performing abortions on women, which was illegal in the United States at the time. The LAPD never considered him a suspect at the time of the investigation, and the theory he was responsible for the murder was put forth by a copy editor for the LA Times who was studying the case in 1996 and a retired FBI profiler. Mark Hansen was a nightclub owner and had known Elizabeth from her time in LA. He had previously let Elizabeth and her friends stay in his house on multiple occasions in 1946. On January 8th, Elizabeth had placed a call to Mark Hansen, and he was interrogated extensively about the subject of the call, during which he made several contradictory statements. When the Los Angeles Examiner received the package with Elizabeth's birth certificate and the pictures, it was Mark's name that was embossed on the cover of the address book, and this obviously shot him right up to the top of the suspect list. Mark claimed that he had given the address book to Elizabeth as a gift and that he had never personally used it. There were also notes in the DA file that indicated that Mark had tried to seduce Elizabeth and that she had rejected him. So I think the idea the DA probably had was that he was rejected by Elizabeth and then he killed her in retaliation or in a rage. However, he had no history of violence and he also had no criminal history. While he was treated as a serious suspect, no charges were ever brought against him and he died of natural causes in 1964. Leslie Dillon was 27 years old at the time of the murder, and he was employed as a bellhop, and he was also an aspiring writer. He previously had been employed as a mortician's assistant. He began corresponding with an LAPD psychiatrist in October of 1948, and he claimed that he read about the case in a magazine and that he was writing the psychiatrist to discuss his theories about the case. During the time that they were writing each other, Dylan discussed his interest in sadism and sexual violence, and then he claimed that he believed that his friend Jeff Connors was responsible for the murder. The content of his letters led the psychiatrist to question whether or not Connors was a real person, so an undercover police operation was planned to meet up with Dylan. Upon questioning, it was revealed that Dylan seemed to have very specific details of the crime and that Connors was a real person who did actually exist. Dylan said that Jeff Connors was actually a man named Artie Lane who worked for Columbia Studios, which was a place that Elizabeth was known to hang out at. Despite this bizarre connection, nothing came of the investigation into Dylan and Lane. There has been some speculation that Artie Lane and Leslie Dylan are actually the same person and that Leslie Dylan was just, you know, making him up. But this theory was never proven one way or the other. LAPD was never able to account for Dylan's whereabouts from January 9th to 15th in 1947. He claimed that he was in San Francisco at the time. After the investigation ended, Dylan filed a lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles based on how he was treated during the Elizabeth Short murder investigation, but dropped the suit when it came out that he was wanted for robbery by the Santa Monica Police Department. Later in 1949, a grand jury was convened to look into police misconduct and corruption regarding Elizabeth's murder as well as other murders. 
It came out that when LAPD set up their secret sting to meet with Dylan, it was not above board and he was actually detained illegally. This, plus the fact that Dylan had witnesses that were not deemed credible, but they were willing to testify that he was in San Francisco during the murder, were the reasons that he was never actually brought to trial. The DA didn't want Dylan to be freed based on what they thought were faulty witness testimony, and they also didn't want to have to own up to the fact that he was actually interrogated illegally, so they would have to admit police fault as well. It's believed that Dylan's LAPD meeting was kept a secret because of the long history of a culture of bad policing within the department. Jealousy, secrecy, and interdepartmental politics ruled, and that meant that case information was not always shared with everybody. Many people theorize that if police had acted appropriately, it may have been possible to bring charges against Leslie Dillon for Elizabeth's murder. Dr. George Hodel was arrested in 1949 when he was accused of raping his 14-year-old daughter. Three people testified against him that had witnessed the abuse. He was acquitted on those charges in December of 1949. Because he was a doctor and because of the nature of his crime he stood trial for, he was added to the list of potential suspects in Elizabeth's murder. Hodel was placed under surveillance in February of 1950. Much of the recordings were mundane, but... That changed on February 19, 1950. Shortly before 8.30 p.m., a woman was heard screaming. Later that night, he was heard saying, and I quote, Realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she is dead. End quote. His secretary, Ruth Spaulding, had died from a drug overdose, but law enforcement was suspicious. He was investigated for her murder because he had burned some of her belongings before calling the police. Through this investigation, it came out that Ruth actually had planned to blackmail Hodel when she discovered he was intentionally misdiagnosing patients so he could bill them for extra treatment. Steve Hodel, George Hodel's son, believed that Elizabeth was one of these patients. There are conflicting reports about how well the two really knew each other. Some claim Elizabeth had dated George Hodel. Others say they were barely acquaintances. George Hodel died in 1999. His son wrote the book... Black Dahlia Avenger in 2003 and claimed his dad was in fact responsible for her murder. Reactions to his claims have been mixed. Some people wholeheartedly believe this theory and others find it completely absurd. In Cleveland, there are a string of murders that took place between 1935 and 1938 that are often discussed when discussing theories about Elizabeth's murder. In those three years, 12 victims were found, and they were always beheaded, and some actually were cut in half, similar to Elizabeth, hence the comparison. Of the victims that were identified, they were both men and women from poor neighborhoods in Cleveland. Some of the victims were known drifters, so their identities were never verified. Since these murders were never solved, there are comparisons made between the killer responsible for these murders and Elizabeth's murder. There isn't a standout suspect with a potential connection to both the Cleveland murders and Elizabeth's murder, though. So that wraps up the suspects we wanted to touch on in this episode. There are tons more, and we didn't really have time to get into all of them because, like I said, there are like, there's a lot to discuss. So if you're interested, it is definitely worth the read. 
And we can share links on our website that profile other potential suspects or suspects that have since been ruled out. This case in general is one that's gotten so many FOIA requests sent to the FBI that they've provided a bunch of original documents on their website that you can just go and download and read. So we'll link those as well because I really like kind of seeing like the real original scans of like documents from the time. Despite several good suspects, Elizabeth's murder has remained unsolved and all of the original lead detectives on the murder case have passed away, the last one being in 2003. Elizabeth was buried in the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. This is obviously close to We Are, so I actually went to the cemetery and found where her grave is. The cemetery itself is really beautiful, so if you're ever in the area, you should pay a visit if you can. There are walking tours of the cemetery on the weekends, and they'll take you to her grave and others. And the cemetery is so old that there's a lot of just Bay Area history there you can learn about. There are also really great views of Oakland and San Francisco from Millionaire's Mm -hmm. Row, a section of the cemetery with these like really ornate old family mausoleums. Or if you drive all the way to the top of the hill, the top of the cemetery, you can see pretty much 180 degree views of the Bay Area. And I go there a lot, if you can tell. (laughs) So I'm always like, hey, you should go see this place. It's great. Cleo Short died in 1967 in Los Angeles, California. He remained estranged from Elizabeth for the rest of her life. And after her death, he refused to be a part of the investigation and media frenzy. Phoebe moved to the Bay Area after her daughter was buried so she could be closer to her. And eventually she did move back east and lived into her 90s. She passed away in Florida in 1992. It was harder to find information on her sisters. It seems they stayed out of the press after the initial media frenzy. It appears that at least some of them had passed away, but we couldn't track down any specific dates or years. As for Betty Bersinger, the woman who found Elizabeth's body, as far as we could find, she's actually still alive. We found the obituary for her husband who passed away in 2008. He was 87 years old and had been married to Betty for 65 years. If Betty is still alive today, and I think she is, because I can't find her obit, she would be in her 90s. So to kind of wrap up, I thought of myself as someone who was familiar with this case, you know, and just in this research, I've definitely learned a lot more. And I'm glad we actually got the chance to look into this case, Mm -hmm. because I don't know if we would have chosen to cover it otherwise. Yeah. I think the most interesting new information for me was looking at how the media treated the murder. I hadn't really researched that part before at all. And I personally am always kind of interested in looking how the crime was like portrayed or viewed at the time it actually happened, especially if it's older. And I tried to stay away from calling Elizabeth the Black Dahlia because that's the name that was only given to her in death. And I had issues with the way the media exploited her and, you know, her family just to sell papers. Yeah. Plus, sometimes I feel like these nicknames kind of remove us from the victim, just who they were as a person. Because, you know, I you know, everybody knows Black Dahlia, you know, found in the vacant lot, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, you know, we read all about, like, her life leading up to that point, And I'm like, no, she's like a yeah, person. Not Elizabeth. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was also surprised to read about all of the suspects in this case. Usually when we have a case with many possible outcomes or, you know, perpetrators, they're more like vague reaches But this case is different because there were several very good possibilities that were known to law enforcement. And I feel like there you can make an argument, like a good argument for multiple people. Mm -hmm. 
I think the person I feel like is probably most likely to be responsible is Leslie Dillon. And that's because he knew the details of the crime that actually piqued law enforcement's interest. And I think that's important to consider. But unfortunately, due to the way that the police handled the case, I don't think it will be solved. And he never got put on trial. And now 70 years later, too much time has passed. And all the police misconduct makes me wonder if Some people in the LAPD did have the answer, and it's just been lost because too much time has passed and too many people involved have passed away. Like I said, I don't think this murder will be solved unless, you know, we get some sort of new evidence that hasn't been seen before that can definitively implicate somebody. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I thought I knew this case too, but I found myself being shocked and what all the time, as I'm sure you guys can hear me in the background sometimes. (laughs) The way the media treated these cases is so much like that movie Chicago, which I thought was, you know, exaggerated, but it kind of seems not. I I think it was Dylan or Dr. Hodel. I'm leaning towards Dylan as well, but Hodel did have that odd recording that the police caught when they were recording him uh, under surveillance. And I could talk about the mismanagement and the misconduct of LAPD, but back then I feel like it was par for the course, and it's just sad that a killer got away, potentially because of the political shit going on in the department at the time. I agree. Um, And then that's kind of it for this week's episode. So we have a few five-star reviews to shout out. So thank you to Holly Boggs, Baby Cakes, Loves, Mitchies, and Doglovich. I hope I pronounced that right. For taking the time to review the show. We're glad you're liking it. And if you have a second and are liking the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a lot. Plus, we like to hear from you guys. We also have a new Patreon supporter we want to thank. So a huge thank you to Tiffany for pledging to the show. She actually pledged at the pick an episode level. So we are looking into her case now. I hadn't actually heard of it before. So I'm super excited to get into the research. Yeah. If you're wanting to support the show or just check out our merch, head over to patreon.com slash misconduct podcast. Well, that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on these cases. What do you think happened to Elizabeth? Do you think this case will ever be solved? You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their music. If you have a case suggestion, please let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. And remember to listen through the end of the show because there is going to be a trailer from one of our pod friends, Kiwi Crimes. And we will see you next week. Hello, I'm Jess, the host of the Kiwi Crimes podcast. Each week, I'll share a missing persons or murder case from New Zealand. I discuss cases that are well known, as well as cases that you might not have heard of. Some cases will be recent and ongoing, while others will be cold. Full-length episodes are released fortnightly, and minisodes are released on the in-between weeks. You can find Kiwi Crimes anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you'll join me as I explore the cases that rocked New Zealand. Kakiteano.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.